the whole war on obesity is a war on people. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be an uphill battle. We are really not healthy. I want to be taken seriously, no matter what my weight. So you're always in like this low-level crisis, pitting your regular bills against whether or not you're going to buy healthy food for your kids. So obesity is a complex disease. The question is, do we have an environment that supports responsible decision? And is a greater public health challenge than anything else, than any virus, any other disease, and even terrorism. I say hunger, and you say, mmm, what's for lunch? Hunger, you see, is like yawning. It's overpowering. It's contagious. When I feel just, like, hungry, I feel like, like I'm so, like, sad and all droopy. When you and your family are hungry, we are all adapted to choose the quickest, closest way of dealing with one of the key mechanisms of human survival. Unfortunately, in a world of abundance when hungry, low-income families have limited options and time and healthy foods are not close by or even available at a reasonable cost, it's the starchy, high-calorie, low-price options that end up satisfying that hunger craving. One in six Americans report being persistently hungry at least once a year. And in 2012, 48 million Americans were classified as food insecure in the world's richest nation. Tracy McMillan is an independent journalist covering hunger for the National Geographic and author of The American Way of Eating. Mary Harris from WNYC's Health Desk and the podcast Only Human and McMillan bring us their conversation as part of our series on obesity this week on just why the federal government started to monitor food insecurity in the first place. So that change, I think, was to reflect the reality of life in the U.S., which is that we do produce enough calories for everybody in this country. Like, that does happen. The difference is now is that because of the way that wages are distributed, right, a lot of people don't really have enough money to buy really healthy diets all the time. So what happens is people stock up a lot on starchy food that won't go bad. Uh, it also means that you know at the start of the month, people will buy more fruits and vegetables. And then after that first flush of money from SNAP, they start to go, oh, this is great. I've got grapes or oranges. This is so wonderful. And then the money starts to peter out and they're like, oh, well, I can't really do that anymore. It's back to mac and cheese and tater tots. And I also certainly came to understand, you know, I spend a lot of time in New York and have done a lot of reporting here. And the social services delivery system here is incredibly sort of forward-thinking and sophisticated. And you have all these nonprofits that are bringing in fresh fruits and vegetables into food pantries and around the rest of the country that's actually very unusual. So most food pantries in the U.S., it's still Cheerios, spaghetti, canned green beans, frozen starches, anything like that, just anything that will be stable. And Something that I, I also came to really appreciate is that when emergency food provision developed in the U.S. in the 1980s under Reagan, the idea was that it was an emergency, right, that this was a temporary problem that a family was going to face and you just had to get them some food, any food, and then the crisis would pass. And what has come to happen is that because our wages don't match the cost of living, families – end up depending regularly on what we call emergency food provision, right? So it becomes like a low-level emergency all the time. Yeah. So you're always in like this low-level crisis pitting all your regular bills against whether or not you're going to buy healthy food for your kids. Can you tell me a little bit about the families that you met? Yeah. I mean, for me, I was really most struck by a family outside of Houston in the suburb of Spring. 
Um, the mom was named Jackie Christian, and she was a single mother of two boys. She was in a homeless shelter program, so she and her boys were staying in a different church every week. And so she would get up at you know five thirty six in the morning, get them to school, and then her day right would be spent going from different home health aid appointment to different home health aid appointment to you know the welfare office or social services office to help her figure out paperwork and then talk into a payday loan officer and this whole thing. So she was incredibly sophisticated at knitting all of this stuff together, but she was making, you know, $7, $8 an hour as a home health aide. And so she didn't really have that much money, I mean, for food or for, you know, for decent housing and so on and so forth. And we actually had what for me was a pretty intense experience where, you know, we'd spent this whole day driving around. So we're in the car for like 13 hours and we pick up the boys and it's getting late and we're still about half an hour from the shelter. And the eight-year-old he wanted fried gizzards and okra, right? I mean, because we're down in, in Houston. And so we went and we stopped at a fast food place and she didn't have enough money to pay for it. And so she it was something where she had to go through like three different declined credit cards. And then we drove back to her mom's house because she'd already ordered the food. And, you know, she borrowed $10 from her mom so we could go back and get, you know, what's essentially junk food to feed the kids, right? And I, I think this is something most parents can identify with, right? Like when your kid is really hungry and stressed out and you just need to take care of them. So yeah. heartbreaking though. Yeah. I mean, and I was like, okay, so this is not that Jackie doesn't understand, you know, fried gizzards and okra is not health food. This is not that she doesn't understand budgeting. This is, you know, she's a stressed out mom with a kid. And so she goes through this whole process to feed him, even though, right, that kind of food, right, is obviously not the healthiest thing. You know, you did talk to one family who was living on a limited income but had found these workarounds, the Reams. Can you tell me a little bit about them? Yeah. So Kira and Joe Reams were this wonderful uh, family. I think they have five kids now uh, living in rural Iowa. And they were this very DIY uh, kind of household where they're like, okay, we don't have very much money. Like Joe uh, has multiple sclerosis. So he, you know, has a bunch of, you know, limitations in terms of what he can do. Kiara didn't get to go to college. And so like her ability to earn much income outside the home is not very significant. But so what they do is they like can and barter and grow a lot of food. So Kiara is incredibly adept at managing bureaucracies and things like this. So she figured out that her SNAP benefits could be used to buy uh, food plants, right? So huh. buy like tomato plants and things like that. So she'll plant a couple of big gardens. She goes and she barters at farmer's markets. She makes soap and will barter for like more flour, sugar, things like that. She does face painting to earn extra income. So they're incredibly plucky and care a lot about their food, right? They don't have very much money. But it sounds like food really becomes a full-time job. It was incredibly disheartening to feel like the only way you can eat a healthy diet when you're poor is that you spend 40, 50, 60 hours a week worrying about food. That's not something we expect out of anybody else in order to get a healthy diet. What stood out to me, there have been all of these efforts, like small efforts, but efforts to make healthy food more accessible to people who are poor, whether it's making your farmer's market accept uh, food stamps or whatever it is. Are those programs not working or do they not get something fundamental about what's happening here? Well, access is absolutely required in order for people to have a healthy diet, but it is not a sufficient solution to fix the quality of diet in low-income households, right? I mean, you need to have good quality fresh produce available to you before you can buy it, but you also need to be able to buy it and you need to be able to cook it. And that requires a very different kind of life than we typically are able to provide to low-income workers in this economy, right? So that's what the difference is. 
So did you leave this project feeling optimistic or pessimistic about like what's happening next? I mean, I think there are definitely some optimistic signs, right? The USDA has reformed its agricultural subsidy program. So we've changed that a little bit for the last two decades, right? We've spent something like two-thirds of our agricultural subsidies on corn, wheat, soy, cotton, and rice. Uh, so that's changing. So that's great. I think that there's ways in which that might mean we'll get more healthy food being produced in the U.S. at a lower cost. Um, but for me, you know, hunger in the U.S. is fundamentally a problem of wages and work life much more than it's a problem of not having access to food. And that's a much bigger problem, right, than just putting a farmer's market in a neighborhood. Thank you so much, Tracy, for yeah, joining us. Thank you for having me. Tracy McMillan is an independent journalist covering hunger for National Geographic and author of The American Way of Eating. And we want to remind you about an event we're hosting in the New York metro area. Come be an audience member in the WNYC Green Space for the other F word, the politics of being fat in America. The event is being moderated by feminist writer Lindy West. One of her guests will be Ashley Nell Tipton, the winner of Project Runway, season 14. It's going to be an open and honest conversation about being overweight in America. Tickets are going fast, so get yours today at wnyc.org slash thegreenspace. Or you can look for us on Twitter. We'll have the link to the tickets page pinned to the top of our account. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.